Hello everyone, this is Pastor Damien. You're listening to Sermon Audio from New City, Orlando. At New City, we believe all of us need all of Jesus for all of life. For more resources, visit our website at newcityorlando.com. Thanks for listening. So I want to ask that you would stand now. Before we turn to the reading and the preaching of his word, we want to ask together that he might be with us he might be glorified by changing each and every one of us. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, open our hearts to hear your word, and through your word, create in our hearts a home for your presence, that we might live for the glory of the Father and the kingdom of his beloved Son. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. We continue our series in the letter to the Romans this week. Romans 2:17 through 3:8. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what's excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit idolatry. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it's written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who's uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, 
Well, good morning. My name is Damien. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to start off by picking up on something Mike said earlier on in the service. We are continuing on in a sermon series in Romans. And we're in the middle of an argument that Paul has been making for uh, over a chapter now. And I want you to know that chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, I'm going to pick up in future weeks, even though we read it today. But what I, I want to catch you up just briefly on an argument that Paul has been making. Effectively, one of the things that Paul is telling us over and over, both at chapter 1, particularly the end of chapter 1, and what we saw last week in chapter 2, is that all of us fall short of the very things that we know. But we don't always think that that's true. In fact, just as Mike mentioned in the call to worship, there are ways that we make up in order to make ourselves feel secure, right? In order to make ourselves feel secure, we start to blame other people. We start to fall into us-them thinking. This morning, Paul's going to continue on in what we talked about last week as a particular tool in order to invite his hearers in called the diatribe. Last week, he did it by saying, you owe man in general, speaking to a type of person. And this week, he talks specifically to the Jewish people in a similar fashion by saying, you a Jew. So as we continue on, we need to keep in mind that we are in one argument uh, in this section of Romans that Paul is making. And the way that I want to get us into it today is by sharing an illustration, a famous illustration by an apologist named Francis Schaeffer when he was talking about Romans chapter 2. So his illustration is, imagine that every human being, when you were born, you were born with an invisible recorder around your neck. Now, it's invisible, so you can't see it, but it's there, and it's always been there. But it doesn't record everything you say. It only records when you make moral judgments. So this is what that sounds like. You ought to. You should. They should know better. You ought to know. Right? These types of things, shoulds and oughts, moral judgments, it's only going to record those things. And then imagine, he says, on judgment day, God simply hits play on the recorder. He takes it off of your neck and you see it for the first time. And he hits play and all you hear is years and years of your voice saying, you should have, they ought to, and so on. And what if God only judges you on your own words? If he doesn't even hold you to the law that you may not have known, but he holds you to the law that you did know. We would see in that moment that he says, Francis Schaeffer says, a man is judged and found wanting on the same basis on which he has tried to bind others. And so these moral judgments can even be less than God's law, but they still show that we all have knowledge of what is right or wrong to an extent, and whatever knowledge we have, we fail to act on it, right? And we all know this. We all fail to act on the knowledge that we have. And knowledge, even knowledge of what is good, only matters if we live in line with it, right? Even if you have the right knowledge, it only really benefits you if you live in line with it. And this is true of anything, right? Think about fitness, right? It can be so confusing, right? And you just say, well, I'm just not going to try because who knows what's right? Who knows how I should eat? Who knows what the right workout is? But I bet you this, if all of us acted in line with 80% of what we already knew, would we not be fitter than we are now? 
right? What if you just took a 30-minute walk every day and didn't eat so much candy? Even if you just did that, if I just did that, we would be acting in line with the little bit of knowledge we knew, and we'd probably be fitter. Maybe with finances, right? Maybe we read articles and books about how to make the best investments and how to double our money or what to invest in. And that's all right and good. But I bet that if many of us simply acted on 80% of what we knew, we might be in a better shape financially. We know that it's not good to yell at your children, for example, who are in this room. We know that that's true. We know it's true that it's good not to raise your voice. And yet, do we sometimes do that? But don't you know that you shouldn't? And of course, many of us know what God's Word says in so many instances in life, and yet we fail to obey it, don't we? In fact, this has been Paul's point in these chapters so far in Romans. Conclusion is, we are in big trouble. But he's going to continue on today, more specifically, as I mentioned, speaking to Jews. And today in our passage, he's going to speak to two ways, two things I should say two ways in which we do not live in line with what we know. And the third thing we're going to talk about today is his invitation. Okay, so the first way in which we fail to live what we know, even as Christians, as believers, and in this case, as Jews who were boasting in the fact that they had God's law, the first thing, the first way that they fail to live in line, and so often we do, is hypocrisy. Okay? So look with me in verses 17 through 22. This is one of those deals where I'm just going to read it and it does most of the work of making my point in this point. Okay? So let's read it, starting in verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. I would just stop there and say, Paul isn't just making these things up. These are things that Jews in their writings say. These are actually true things. In other words, these are good. They are supposed to be a light to those in darkness. They are supposed to be a guide to the blind. They are supposed to be a teacher of children. They are supposed to have in their law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Paul doesn't disagree with these things. He's acknowledging that they're right. But where things change is in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. So he's turning to Jews right now, and he's telling them, all of the things that you're saying are true enough, but you're not living in line with the truth that you know, and you're not living in line with the truth that you speak of others. Okay, this resonates with our culture. Not everything in the Bible we've talked about, right, of course, in the last two or three weeks resonates, but this one does, and we have a word for it. The Bible has this word. We in our culture are fine with using this word. That is the word hypocrisy. In a sense, what's happening is the Jews are saying one thing, but 
their moral living or their moral life does not conform to the very moral code they believe and teach others. And this is, of course, hypocrisy. But what we'll see in verses 28 and 29 when Paul talks about the importance not just of the outward life but the inward life, and when we think of other places in the Bible, even the Sermon on the Mount, we understand that hypocrisy, biblically speaking, is more than simply us saying one thing and doing another. It also includes our heart's motivation. So we may in fact say one thing and do it, but if we do it for the wrong reasons, that is also a form of hypocrisy. And our culture is really big on the first one, but not so, uh, not so big on the second one. So I want to share an illustration to sort of put some flesh on this maybe. So uh, think about in 2020, uh, there was a governor of a state during COVID who had really rigid precautions for COVID. And it was coming up on a holiday and he was very clear, even in moral language, of the importance of particularly his, uh, uh, sorry, hold on a second. Yes. So even in his particular way of describing why and what his precautions were, there was moral force to what he was saying. Okay? Well, people could be frustrated or not with, with what he was saying or not saying. But then what happened a week or two later, of course, if you remember, is photos surfaced of him in a room with a bunch of people. None of them were abiding by the precautions he said were very important. Okay? And of course, he apologized for this and so on. But it's not just here, just this year, actually. The beginning of this year already, uh, the prime minister of the UK found himself in a very similar situation. Right? He, he, he increased the precautions of COVID, and then it came out that he was not, in fact, living in line with what he said was important. And of course, what do we say about that? It's hypocrisy. That's right. But can we imagine in the biblical frame that they were saying those things and maybe even living in line with those things, but their desire wasn't in line with why they were saying those things, right, to love others, but maybe it was to score political points. And that's why they were abiding on these things. Both of those things are hypocrisy. So it's important to recognize that what Paul really is after is not merely outward conformity. He's after wholeness. And hypocrisy speaks to both sides of that. So Paul is pointing out their hypocrisy, but in verse 23, he points out the second thing or the second way of living that keeps us from living in line with what we actually know. The first thing is hypocrisy. The second thing is idolatry. So look with me in verse 23, right up to where we finished off the last reading. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now it's easy to miss, but in verse 23, he says, you who boast in the law That's different than what he said in verse 17. Look with me in verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God. Now listen, that's different, right? They're relying on the law in order uh, to know what it means to be human. It's a gift from God, that is to say the law. It's a self-revelation that is meant to lead them to trust or boast in God. That is the use of the law. So they're saying we rely on the law which is a good thing that we have it because it teaches us how to boast in God and who God is. But all of a sudden in verse 23, Paul raises the truth that he actually sees. And that is, no, you don't rely on the law to boast in God. You actually boast in the law. 
And that is to say, you boast on the external markings or boundary markers of the law, particularly practicing the law and circumcision. Now, this is actually understandable because we understand that God's people, the Jews, were to be a distinct people, that they were called out of the nations in order to be the nation that God brought hope and blessing through. And they then, of course, were to be distinct. One of the ways in their history that that took place was they really were their own nation, right? They, they were their own nation. They were distinct as that nation. They had their own king. They were able to live in very distinct ways. But that didn't last really long in the history of Israel. They're exiled, and they find themselves, for much of their history, actually living under the rule of other governments. In this case now, they're living under the Roman Empire in the Roman rule. So when they find themselves under Roman rule in this case, what they're trying to do is they're trying to find ways in which to keep and display their distinctiveness. And the two ways that they're doing that aren't bad in and of themselves. That is, God has given us the law, a unique understanding of who he is and how we are to reflect him, and circumcision. Those were the two outward markers that they had adopted and lifted up as the primary ways that they would remain distinct among the nations. That in and of itself isn't bad, but it seems what Paul is raising here, and commentators point out, that a desire for power and prestige has found its way into the Jewish people, and that many Jews had fallen into a type of mere externalism. They'd gone from boasting in God to boasting in the law, and particularly their perceived practice of the law. The thing that separated them or gave them status was their uh, adherence to the law. So it seemed then that they had comforted themselves by saying, hey, we have the law and circumcision, so God won't judge us. We're different than everyone else simply because we have the law and we have circumcision. And so insofar as this is true, what it means is they'd come to put their trust in their status as Jews for salvation, not in God, their Savior, for salvation. Do you see the, the slight shift Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, talks about what this dynamic is like and how insidious it is for all of us, right? And what he says is making an image of something, right? Because when we think of idols, we mainly think of an image, like I've crafted an idol. Keller says, well, making an image of something is not necessarily a physical process, but is certainly a spiritual and psychological one. It means imagining and trusting anything to deliver the control, security, significance, satisfaction, and beauty that only the real God can give. It means turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. So it might be so that what Paul is picking up on is the Jews took a really good thing, which is the law and the gift that was to them, and circumcision, which the gift that was to them, and they've made it an ultimate thing. By merely conforming to the outward practice of the law, they've forgotten their true worship. They started worshiping other things. And the way this looks like in our life is when we start having conversations in our head that sound something like this. I'm okay if, or I'm okay when, and then fill in the blank. Let me give you some examples. Maybe you say, I'm okay when I have power and influence over others. As long as that's true, then I'm okay. Maybe you say, I'm okay when I'm loved and respected by fill-in-the-blank, my boss, my spouse, 
my friends. I'm okay when I have a certain kind of experience and a particular quality of life. So it's comfort that you've made your security. Some of you might think, well, I'm okay when people are dependent upon me and need me. That's when I know that I'm okay, when I'm needed. Some of you might say, I'm okay when I'm highly productive and getting a lot done. That's when I know I'm okay. Some of you similarly might think, well, I know I'm okay if I'm being recognized for my accomplishments and I'm excelling in my work. Some of you might comfort yourself by saying, well, I'm okay when, or I'll be okay when, I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. Many of these things are good things. But when we begin to trust in them, when we begin to sacrifice for them ultimately, when we begin to boast in them, to use Paul's language, we blaspheme God because we are in a sense worshiping something else, even good things that we've made ultimate things. And so what Paul is saying in this portion of his argument is that there are two primary ways that we do not live in line with the knowledge we have. The first way is hypocrisy. The second way is idolatry, when we start worshiping other things besides God. Even when we know God is the true God, it still slips in there, right? They knew that their obedience to the law wasn't going to save them, and yet they lived as though it was so often. So if those are the two ways in which we, we live in, way, in a way that keeps us in line with what we know to be true, then what's the remedy? Well, I think under all of this, Paul is inviting them, and he will continually so throughout the chapters, he's inviting them to their need for wholeness. And this is the final, chap- final point this morning, our need for wholeness. Now we can see this because the flip side of, of hypocrisy is what? It's integrity. It's our insides matching our outsides. That's the flip side of hypocrisy. And the flip side of idolatry is true worship. It's the worship of the true God, not a false God made in our own image. And so proper worship and integrity of heart make whole people. When we worship God properly from the heart and our insides match our outsides in integrity, we're not hypocrites, that brings about wholeness. And so that's what Paul is inviting us to. Verse 29 is key. Look at me in verse 29. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And this is so important. His praise, that is to say the person's praise, is not from man, but from God. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is key to the paragraph, right? This sums it up. To live your life, as some authors say, for the audience of one is what we ought to aim for. To live your life for the one true God inside and out. We've learned over these weeks, your performance won't save you. Outward conformity to the law will not save you. Boasting in God, your Savior, is what saves you. Casting yourself upon Jesus, his life, and letting the Spirit work in your heart. That's what he says right here. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit. This is what saves us. There is freedom and there is wholeness because what we've seen is we're called to have our insides match our outsides and yet it doesn't happen. So often it doesn't happen. So we have two options, right? 
we can begin to live in this false reality, mere externalism of us, them, or in repentance, we can turn back and cast ourselves upon Jesus. Those are the two options that we have. Listen, this isn't new. This idea of circumcision of the heart isn't new. This is actually Moses said this, that the issue of circumcision is fundamentally circumcision of the heart. And so this isn't a New Testament thing, Old Testament thing. This is a human thing. This need, this desire for wholeness is oftentimes short-circuited by a self-contained strength, a self-relying strength. And the way that when we're living in that, it comes out sideways, is in hypocrisy, us, them, or idolatry, false worship. But the invitation over and over in scriptures is to recognize circumcision. To be a part of God's people is a matter of the heart. That's where it starts. And so the invitation is to come back in your inner life to a new love. In your inner life to have your loves, which are now disordered, reordered. That you would love God and not the praise of man, he says. That you would live for the audience of one and not for other men or women. Now, as powerful as this truth is, I want to name one temptation in our culture. This is a foundational truth. That is to say that biblical faith is not about mere externalism. Isn't that the freedom of Christianity? That you don't have to pretend to be something you're not. That you don't have to perform for anyone. That it's Jesus' obedience, not your obedience, that gives you security. It's Jesus' obedience, his life, his death, his resurrection, that allows you to go to work tomorrow morning and not live frantically to prove yourself to anybody. It allows you to talk with other parents about your mistakes in parenting and not hide. But be honest about where you're not sure. Be honest about where you made a mistake. This is the freedom of Christianity. It's that we get to cast ourselves over and over on the obedience of Jesus. That's true. But here's the temptation in our culture. I think some of it's sociologically, some of it's the, the spirit of our age. But what we do is we begin to overemphasize the mere internalness of faith and we underestimate the importance of external obedience. So we swing the pendulum. We say, well, listen, the external stuff doesn't really matter. It's just my heart that matters, right? I don't really have to do that. I don't really have to go to church. I don't really have to think about what movies I'm watching or what TV I'm watching. I don't have to think about any of that because Jesus is just judging my heart. He's not judging my external obedience, right? Listen, that's true. But what's important for us to know is that when we fall into that temptation, any talk of obedience quickly is named as legalism. As soon as we start talking about obedience, if we follow that temptation and swing the pendulum, we can't talk at all about what type of living is wise or not. I think that would be a mistake. We know that Paul's going to get to a place in his argument in Romans where he speaks to the wonderful promise that the Spirit, the Spirit will give us new desires and that those desires will in fact direct our outward obedience. We will keep in step with the Spirit. We will experience wholeness as our outward obedience increasingly comes in line with this new love of our heart. The freedom is in wholeness. It's when your insides, what you love, 
your desires, that they increasingly come in line with your external life. That is freedom. Freedom is not to say that God only cares about what's inside and he doesn't care about my external obedience. That's not freedom. It's just a new form of slavery. Now listen, we know in our culture that it matters that the inside matches the outside. And we even see it as courageous when it's done well. On June 13th, 1936, a man named August, or August, was working in a German shipyard. And on this particular day in the shipyard that he was working in, they were about to set sail for the first time uh, a new vessel that they had been working on for quite some time. And so there was a lot of fanfare and a number of people were there, not just the workers in the shipyard, but also press and other people. Lots of people were there. And to everyone's surprise, a man walked out onto, I guess it's called the hole, I don't know, the front of the ship, looked at everyone. And as he walks out, everyone notices that it was Hitler. And no one expected him to be there on that day. And there's a photo of this. You can Google this photo. You've probably seen it. This massive crowd, their immediate response is to salute him. And we have this photo because this was propaganda. And so there were photographers to capture this moment uh, as propaganda, the minister of propaganda. And so they took this photo, and we have this photo of all of these, this throng of people saluting Hitler, and then one man who was like this. And you can look at photos, and they've circled this man. What do we assume about that man? We assume that in his heart, he knew that Hitler was not worthy of salute. In his heart, he knew that, and so he refused externally to do it. He's like this. And we call it courageous. And yet, there, there could have been dozens of people around him who knew the exact same thing in their heart. They knew the exact same thing, and yet out of fear, they saluted. What do we call that? Cowardice. There's something instinctually inside us that knows that a whole human being is a person whose insides match their outsides. And we call it what it is. We call it worthy of praise. We call it what it is. We call it as worthy of emulation. That our lives are wholer and fuller when our insides love what is just right and good and our outsides match that desire. Now listen, I'm not saying that you or me, that we would have done the same thing. Maybe, maybe we would have been that person in the crowd who had a fear for our life because by the way, he paid for that. He was arrested, separated from his Jewish wife and sent to a concentration camp. And yet still, we wonder, do I have what it takes in that moment to live what I know is right? Now listen, what I'm not saying is that your salvation in the time of trial is up to you. That if you fail in that moment, that God will leave you or forsake you. No, I'm not saying that. All I'm doing is pointing to the beauty that we know that wholeness and goodness is when our insides, what we love and desire, increasingly come in line with what's outside of us, our behavior, our obedience. And so if we define wholeness as less than both a new love and a new heart and an increasing new obedience that comes in line with that new love, 
and then a new heart, then we're not properly defining wholeness. So what is repentance then? When we recognize that we are the person who knew in our heart that this man is not worthy of salute and did it anyway. Because we all do that. We do it in our own ways, small ways, ways in which we know something to be wrong, and yet we do it anyway. What do we do in those moments? Well, we repent, but we don't comfort ourselves by saying, well, God knows what I really wanted. No, we cast ourselves on Jesus, and repentance is a request that God would grant us wholeness, right? Because in that moment, we actually turn from that sinful behavior, and we turn a new way. And what do we turn? We turn toward, God, I long in this conviction of my heart for my life to look more in line with what I know to be true, for my life to bear witness more truly to who I am in you. And I'll end with this. Our identity is in Jesus. He has given us this new identity. That's who you are. We rest in that new identity. And yet the Christian life includes a wrestling with us in a life that is embodying more and more who we actually are. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. So the proper response is not to try harder to prove yourself to God or anyone, but it's rather to turn back to Jesus to lean into who you actually are. The invitation is to wholeness. So this week, when you experience hypocrisy, when you experience idolatry, the invitation is to turn back to Jesus, that he would not only change your heart more and more, but your life would come more in line with that truth. Let's pray. Father, we come to you asking that you would do just this, that today and this week, that our lives would look more and more like you, Jesus, that we would live our lives more in line with this new identity that you've given us, and that we would see goodness and beauty is in wholeness offered in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.